And thank you for pursuing us. Amen. So uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, I'm honored and humbled to uh, stand before you to bring a message from God's Word to God's people. Uh, we're in week two of our series called The Art of Neighboring. Um, as James mentioned last week, our church is partnering with over 100 churches in the Charlotte metro area and reaching over 50,000 people in those churches with the central theme of Jesus, which is the greatest commandment, to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself. Uh, our hope during this series is that each of us would begin to intentionally live out the greatest commandment in a new and fresh way. Last week we were given a map to start to fill out the names of our neighbors and those that are close to us um, or that live around us. Hopefully you were able to start moving in that direction. Yes, that's rain. Okay? That's rain. Okay? You're dry. You're dry. You're going to be okay. It is rain. But it hasn't rained in a while, so we're new to that sound. So anyway... Um, so hopefully you've been able to start moving towards getting to know those who live around you. Our goal, and I'll just talk louder, is that each of us would be inspired and challenged and equipped to become neighborhood focused where we interact with our neighbors uh, by moving over time from a stranger to an acquaintance and from an acquaintance to a relationship. Ultimately, our goal is not just that we would get to know our neighbors, right? Our goal is that our neighbors would know Jesus. Our desire at Christ Point is to point people to Jesus. One of the ways we do that is by engaging all people. Um, this is one of our core four objectives. I don't know about you, but the word all sounds like a lot. As we think about how to trim down that word, and trust me, that's crossed my mind, uh, uh, to make it easier on us or less overwhelming, who exactly would we leave out? Do we just want to engage certain people? Uh, do, we, do we just want to pursue practical opportunities and kind of try to ignore the impractical opportunities? Should we just engage suburban people? Should we just engage those who speak like us and who think like us and maybe those who dress like us or maybe even vote like us? Maybe I'm wrong, but as of today, I can't think of any way that we can truly narrow down the field in good conscience in terms of who we engage. Last week, we talked about the impact and value of actually taking the greatest commandment seriously or taking it literally as, as Jesus intended. As James discussed, it's easy for us to kind of, you know, keep the greatest commandment more as a metaphor. You know, more is a, is a cool saying that really doesn't challenge us to grow in Christ-likeness. So today I want to discuss three barriers that we can remove in order to implement the greatest commandment into our lives. Okay, three barriers. The first barrier we can remove is the time barrier. The time barrier. Our initial text today will again be Luke 10, uh, 25 through 37. James went through this in detail last week, but I want to read through it again and, and talk about it a little bit. Starting in verse 25, <clears throat> And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul 
and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So in these verses, Jesus is confirming for the lawyer and for us what the greatest commandment is. And then the conversation continues. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, it's amazing what our pride will get us into, said to Jesus, who exactly is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when you come back, or when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. So once again, a crowd of proud and relatively educated know-it-alls have kind of been left quieted or stumped by one of Jesus' stories. I'm imagining there was some, um, maybe some tension in the air. And I have a confession to make. When we read this story, uh, or this text last week, which is familiar to me, and maybe it's familiar to many of you, my first thought was not, who is my neighbor, like the lawyer. My first thought, when we go through this story, was, I ain't got time for that. I'm busy. I got to work. I got important stuff to do. Maybe I'm alone in feeling this way. But the topic of loving my next door neighbor causes some tension in my own heart. It's essentially about time, or what I see is my lack of extra time. I think time is likely the main reason why I or why we don't engage our neighbors effectively. Again, in speaking for myself, my initial thought is I don't have time for the interruption of another seemingly random relationship. I just don't. And I'm not sure I'd want one even if I could. I mean, sometimes the thought of it just exhausts me. We live in a busy world. I don't know if y'all have noticed, but it's pretty busy. What's interesting is that technology is supposed to give us margin. But we often end up filling up our days with more stuff. Technology promises that we'll be able to accomplish more with less. I mean, there's been talk about the four-hour workday or the four-hour work week. But studies show that we're working more, not less. We foolishly tell ourselves that it'll get better when X happens, you know, fill in the blank. Or once we get enough money saved in a certain account, then we'll be content and then we can slow down and then we can do good for others. Or we tell ourselves that what I think a lot of us end up saying, which is, hey, this is, this is just how it is. Everybody lives this way. We have a task list or a priority list 
that often has more items listed on it than we'll able to get to or be able to get to at any point in the near future. The bottom line is we have stuff to do, and it's important stuff. And unless we see someone as important to us as our list of to-do items, we're not inclined to engage our neighbors. And I think, you know, one thing that what really makes me sad about that is that this aligns mostly with the priest and the Levite in the story of the Good Samaritan. The half-dead man on the side of the road um, is not important to them compared to the meeting they have planned, the place they're going, and the things they need to do. Not only is he not worth their time, he appears to even be a nuisance. They actually go out of their way to avoid him by walking by on the other side of the road. Contrast this with the good Samaritan who's walking along minding his own business. Maybe he was going to an important meeting too. Maybe he was looking, you know, he had a call coming up with a client. He needed to get to a clear cell signal where it's quiet. That's kind of what's on my mind when I'm walking along. Um, at a minimum, I'm thinking he had his time for that day already allocated. I'm thinking his schedule was probably accounted for. And here he comes across this victim, the man left half dead, and as soon as he sees the victim, he, one, has compassion on him, and two, he moves immediately to help him. Was I literally, like, just turning sideways? That's kind of interesting. Anyway, <laughs> then what did he do? What did the Good Samaritan do? He put the man on his own animal and took him to an inn and paid for the man's care out of his own pocket. This is the part that hits me the hardest in the story. He stops where he's going, goes out of his way to be sure the man is cared for, which I'm sure had to set his schedule back by several hours. The story, the, the, the parable of, of the story that Jesus tells says the man spent the night at the inn. So I don't know that he was planning on spending the night at that particular place. And then he pays for it out of his own pocket. Not only that, then he makes plans to stop back by later to cover any extra expenses once he's on his way home. And he does all this anonymously. I mean, there's no fanfare that we know of. There's no selfie post to an Instagram, Instagram talking about, you know, like helping a brother out. There's no acknowledgement. There's no expectation of repayment that we know of. There's no requirement of a thank you. The victim might not even know who the guy is and may never know. He's just doing the next right thing in light of who he sees in front of him. Everything the Good Samaritan does starts with his heart's positioning in regards to his time and how other people, in this case even a stranger, fit into his schedule or fit into his life. So you've got this, you've got this um, Samaritan, I mean, you've got the dead man on the side of the street. They're walking along. The priest and Levite sees the, sees the guy hurt and moves immediately away. Con contrast that with the good Samaritan walking along, sees the man hurt and moves toward. I don't know if you all have things like this happen, but I have times whenever things or events or things come into my vision my, my peripheral vision or whatever, where I either move immediately away or I move immediately toward. And that reaction is about my heart. There's no, there's no 
significant thought pattern going on. Should I go? Should I go? Should I go? No. It's boom, boom. That's what I'm thinking. Um, and so what's happened to me or to this Samaritan or to the priest and Levite up until that point has determined how they've responded to this. This is a revelation of their heart. It's not where our heart or our character is made. It's where our heart or our character is revealed. You know, I wonder how many of our neighbors are laying in a ditch, half dead and barely hanging on. Maybe not literally, but emotionally and spiritually and maybe eternally. Maybe they look neat and calm on the outside. Their lawn is cut. Their family looks happy enough, their lives seem normal enough. But inside the closed door, they're dying. Every morning, perhaps, waking up is a bit of a challenge. I mean, they may have situational hope based on an upcoming event or a vacation, but not permanent, consistent hope that their future is guaranteed to be better because of Jesus. Scripture does tell us very clearly that for anyone who doesn't know Jesus through repentance and salvation, they are in fact dying. When we say, I don't have time to get to know my neighbor, what we're really saying is, I don't consider getting to know my neighbor, loving my neighbor, and caring about their eternity as important as what I have to do that particular day. So what do we do? Well, we can begin to remove this time barrier by intentionally and prayerfully ordering our lives in such a way as to allow for interruptions. And I would go as far as to say to even plan on interruptions. Just like the Good Samaritan did, we respond to those around us from a philosophy that people are infinitely more important than tasks and calendars. I'm working on this in my life as we speak. I have my own business, and through God's grace... I've experienced some growth over the last decade. And with that growth has come a lot of increased busyness. My staff or team will tell you that over the last number of months, I've been intentionally and consistently moving in the direction of offloading many tasks from my plate so that I can focus on relationships. Like, like my relationship with God, my relationship with my family and my friends, even my relationship with clients and people that I come into contact with in the market. I feel a need to, as a believer in Jesus, to, to lead myself and them toward Jesus. And I want to do that well. But I can't do it unless I'm intentional. If you allow me to be this open, my drive for doing this is that, frankly, I'm, I'm tired of being hurried. I'm tired of repenting or needing to repent for an aggravated response when someone or something interrupts my overloaded schedule. I want to get better at focusing on the right thing. So let me ask, what does this look like for you? Is there something on your plate that you need to take off of your plate? Have you said yes to so many good opportunities that you couldn't stop, put it all down, and love the person in front of you? Which leads to the second barrier we can remove to live out the greatest commandment. And that's remove what I'd call the focus barrier. So first we remove the time barrier. The second is we remove the focus barrier. What in the world is a focus barrier? 
right? Well, by focus barrier, I really mean an incorrect focus barrier. To illustrate with me, please turn to Luke 10, 38 through 42. You look in your Bibles or on the screen. It's the story of Mary and Martha. Is that a, okay. I've been told by the pre- preaching professionals that you never, ever look at the screen. You're supposed to just know and trust that it's there. But I just wanted to look. So anyway, so here we go. Mary and Martha. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her, into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. So here we have the story of two sisters, Mary and Martha, who both apparently love Jesus. Mary shows her love by sitting at Jesus' feet and absorbing everything she can. It seems accurate to me to say that Mary is worshiping Jesus. Then we have Martha. She shows her love by serving. That's a good thing. So much so that she's scurrying around to the point of being distracted. It seems accurate to say that Martha is also worshiping. But she's not worshiping Jesus at that moment, is she? She's worshiping serving Jesus at that moment. It's a big difference. She's so busy doing for Jesus that she missed out on being with Jesus. For many of us in the church, this one stings a bit. We get caught up in the incorrect focus of service for Jesus in place of relationship with Jesus. And you may have heard the saying that when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a very, very bad thing. For Martha, the good thing of serving Jesus caused her to miss the point entirely. For those of us who struggle with busyness, our dilemma really is a lot bigger than just a shortage of time. It's a problem of focus. We focus on the wrong priorities. We tend to let the urgent things in our lives crowd out the important things in our lives. When our priorities are determined by the urgent, our lives will not line up with our values. They won't match. So a question for you is, are you missing the main thing because you're busy with many other good things? Do you let the urgent things in your life keep you from the important things? Most of you know my wife, Anne Marie. <laughs> Depending on how well you know her, you may or may not know that Anne Marie is highly focused. She's direct. I love that about her because I always know where I stand. It's very clear. <laughs> She's authentic almost to a fault. She's also really funny. She loves to cut up. And she gets along great with our two teenagers, Ava and Gavin, because she's a third teenager. I live with three teenagers. Uh, She's also a bit of an introvert, so she's an intriguing mix. On a typical day, 
Anne-Marie makes a list of stuff that she needs to do. And she sees it as both important and urgent. And she's right, typically. And then she proceeds to focus her time and energy on going through the list. Her next door neighbor is a single woman who has never been married and has had some major health issues. She's had over 20 surgeries. She's disabled and she often, regularly, needs help with things around her house. She's also highly relational and she loves, loves, loves her some Anne Marie time. Now, I'm partial. I love, love, love me some Anne Marie time too. I'm married to her. But our neighbor loves hanging out with Anne Marie. And over the years, we've been at this house where we live for about five years. Um, this neighbor's gotten really comfortable with Anne Marie. Uh, she contacts Anne Marie regularly to help her with physical things she can't do on her own. And this includes help getting dressed and doing things that a nurse might do. I, she's told me some things. I'm not sure I could do it. Um, Sometimes Anne-Marie wrestles with the timing. I mean, she chuckles about how she gets knee-deep into a project and she gets the text. Um, and she, she wrestles sometimes because her to-do list gets left undone on a particular day because of this relationship. But when given the choice of helping our neighbor and working on her list, I can't recall one time that Anne-Marie chose the list. Now, I bring that up because um, over time, this has led to a number of significant conversations with our neighbor about life and faith and eternity. It's been impressive for me to watch. I've been humbled and challenged by her example because I, I just, I'm the one that probably would lament louder than she would. Um, there's so many serving and giving stories like this at Christ Point. I mean, you people, I, the people at this church are flat out amazing. And like many of you practice and all of us need to remember, the story of Mary and Martha teaches us that we have to live counterculturally to the world in order to experience the life that Jesus calls us and wants us to live. We have to learn how to say no to the good things so that we can say yes to the main thing. And this brings the question that I naturally go to, which is, is living like this even possible? Is it possible? And the answer is that in our own strength, no, it's not possible. And this leads to the third barrier that we can remove to practically implement the greatest commandment. That's remove the performance barrier. Okay? First, we remove the time barrier. Second, we remove the incorrect focus barrier. And third is we remove the performance barrier. By performance barrier, I mean the natural inclination to respond to this morning's service with, I need to get better. I need to get my act together. Simply put, the only way we remove this performance barrier is through prayer, and as a result of prayer, a changed heart. We cannot, I want to say this as emphatically as I can in a polite way, we cannot, in our own effort, live out the greatest commandment. It is impossible. It's futile to even try, and I'll go as far as to say it's sinful to even try. So we beg God through His Spirit in us to change our hearts from the inside out and to cause us to want to do what He put us here to do. 
And that leads to this verse, that one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Ezekiel 36, 27. God is talking to the Israelites. They have ruined it. They've screwed it up over and over and over and over and over. They just keep messing up. And God is going to take over. He's not going to wipe them out. He's going to take over in a gospel kind of way. So God tells the Israelites, I will put my spirit within you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my commands. I love that. I make that personal sometimes when I read it. Billy, I'm going to put my spirit in you. And I am going to move you to do what I put you here to do. I am going to move you to obey. It's not you, it's me. Now that's God saying that to me. Then in Psalm 90, 12, it says, So teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. God is the one who puts his spirit in us. He is the one that causes us to follow him and to love him and to love our neighbor. It's God who teaches us and gives us a wise heart. Then in John 4, 34, Jesus is talking to the disciples they're panicking or wondering, not panicking, maybe he's overstating it, but they're, they're kind of going, hey, are you going to eat? And he's like, I'm not hungry. And they're like, well, where's he eating? Who's bringing him food? Did you bring him food? Who brought him food? And he just kind of inserts himself into this to his disciples and said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The essence of what sustained Jesus, the most important thing he did every day that kept him moving forward, is doing the will of his Father. Jesus was amazingly focused. Okay? He was highly focused. He was here to do and to finish the work that his Father gave him to to do. And yet, he was never hurried. He had time for people, and he had time for conversations. I believe he had time with these people and these conversations because they were actually part of the work that he was here to do. He allowed, he built in interruptions into his schedule because they were just as important as what he was on schedule to do. Now, obviously, he took time to rest and recharge, and he pulled back to pray and be alone with his father on a regular basis. In a book called The Life You've Always Wanted, author John Ortberg states that hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. He coins the phrase hurry sickness and goes on to say that the reason hurrying is so dangerous is because love and hurry are not at all compatible. Because love always takes time. And time is the one thing that hurried people don't have. That stings. So we have to do everything we're talking about in this series with constant and consistent prayer at the center. Ministry flows out of our time with God. It does not replace our time with God. With this in mind, I want to give us a challenge for this week. Prayerfully spend at least an hour in your front yard and engage your neighbors and see what happens. Or take a walk in your neighborhood, again prayerfully, And actually engage the people that you walk by or that you see. And if you already know them, take the next step. Get their number. Invite them over. Through the Holy Spirit, we can, in fact, live out 
the greatest commandment. We can love God and we can love our neighbor well. We can remove the time barrier. We can remove the incorrect focus barrier. And we can also remove the performance barrier. The thought of removing the performance barrier is my favorite. Because it reminds me that this is God's deal. And I'm to submit, repent, and beg Him to show up and pray for His guidance. He always does. The pressure's off in my own performance. God has called us to love our neighbor. So what would this look like if we took the second half of the greatest commandment seriously? What would our neighborhood look like? What would our church look like? What if time was no longer an excuse that we threw around as a reason why we can't do things? What if we focused on the most important thing instead of a lot of other urgent things? And what if empowered by the Spirit of the living God, we grew to love our neighbors really, really well?